Now, the purpose of this talk is really to catch you up on, it's really just to provide an introduction on some of the material that I'm going to share with you over the next several weeks. It is the backstory to this information that I've written down in this book. The name of it is Life Lift. And the, in the introduction, I talk about this idea that the true measure of revival, it isn't what happens in a moment. So often you talk to pastors or leaders and they say, oh, we had this fabulous, they use the term, revival. I would say the revival isn't just what happens in the moment. The measure of it is what happens over time because the supernatural is really a lifestyle. Now, again, that idea really comes from the introduction of this book that uh, I really put together over the last couple months with my dad. Haven't released it yet. It's going to come out. And so I, I want to take you into the backstory of where that information came from because over the next few weeks, this is some of the stuff that I'm going to talk about. I'm going to actually start a new, I guess it's really kind of a new talk series today with, with the release of this. So here it is. You know, I remember growing up and my dad never struck me as a guy who was ever jaded about anything. But after he left seminary, uh, which is when I was born, he began asking a few really tough questions in a healthy way. Those questions got more real and urgent as he worked his way through a few pastorates at various churches. He was wondering things like, if the church is the hope of the world, that's that's what a lot of church leaders say, then why isn't the church more powerful? But why do we often seem so defeated, always one step behind? We started wondering things like this. If Jesus said that he would build his church and that hell would not prevail, then why does it seem like the church is always holding a defensive posture rather than an offensive one in culture? And that, that's just kind of in Matthew 16, 18. Uh, another thought, if Jesus promised that the church would do greater works than he did, that's in John 14, 12, then where exactly is that power? Why isn't the church walking in more of, of the supernatural? Now, questions like that led to exploration, and the exploration led to really some of the concepts that I'm going to teach you into that book. Uh, I'm going to put a link to the online information related to that book in the show notes. And I I, I really think it it was kind of 20 years in the making on his end. It led to the first version of a book that we put together, and then it was 20 more years. So, So really, 40 years altogether, 20 from the questions to where he put it in a book, 20 more years until I'm involved and I'm working together with him on a book. And to understand all of that, you've really got to go deep back into my story. So here's here's part of it. For about a decade, I coasted through, I'm going to call it church world, playing the charade of a really good Christian. I was just like the older brother in the story of the prodigal son who kept all the rules and frowned on people who didn't. Now, if you don't know who the prodigal son and the older brother is, no worries. I'm going to talk to you about their story in probably a few weeks, and I'm going to put a link in the show notes to a place where I talked about their story before. Um, At any rate, when I was in preschool, that young, the Lord spoke to my heart. I I was tiny. It sounds early, but when you remember things like God set Paul aside from birth in Galatians 1.5, when you remember that Isaiah was called before he was born, according to his words in Isaiah 49, 1 and 2, when you remember that David says all the days of our lives are numbered, it's in Psalms 139, 13, it doesn't seem that outlandish that a preschooler could have an encounter. And then you got to remember the story about Samuel hearing God's audible voice when he was young, 1 Samuel 3, 7. 
Paul concludes that God planned good works. That's the phrase he uses from before time began that you and I would walk in. That's in Ephesians 2, 8, and 10. So what I'm getting at is the Father has an amazing destiny for you, for me, even before we ever awaken to the reality of radical grace. So I remember when I was in preschool, my eyes really being open to this goodness. I was a small child. I walked the aisle one evening, one Sunday night during a church service. That's how you went public with your faith back then. In a real sense, I really think that going public like that is way better than checking a box on a card. It's better than signing your name to something that you drop into an offering basket or raising your hand while no one looks. You know, preachers do that. Hey, raise your hand. I promise you no one's going to see. I remember as I scurried down the middle aisle. It was the left middle aisle of the church. Some churches have those center aisle, two aisles, left middle aisle. Uh, I remember I was crying, and it was a good cry. As a result of that, I couldn't talk, so I couldn't get the words out to express what I was feeling when I got to the end of the pastor. Now, the pastor was my dad, and he sent me right back down the aisle. Do you want to go to your mom, he asked. The truth is I didn't want to go back. I wanted to step over the line into freedom, salvation, and redemption, but I couldn't speak. So I turned, I retreated, and I kept those feelings locked inside, hidden from anyone else. Now, a few years later, my brother decided that he wanted to trust Jesus. That's the verbiage that Southern Baptist churches used with kids in the early 80s when they presented the gospel and asked if anyone wanted to respond affirmatively. I saw him heading down the church pew, and I decided I didn't want to be one-upped by him. Now, we weren't in competition. Something pulled me, though, some sort of pride. I had tinkered with this a long, long time. I'd been sitting on it for at least a year then, and in kid time... A year is like a decade. Plus, I'd, I'd wanted it. I'd tried to go all in. I just couldn't get the words out. And somehow, to, you got to get the words out because you got to confess, right, that Jesus is Lord. You got to say the prayer in Southern Baptist terminology. So I felt like I had been excluded because of all of that. So here's what I did I bounded the pew with him. I got the obligatory words out. And then I, quote, joined the church based on my another term here profession of faith that Jesus is Lord. I know, that's a lot of church lingo. Now, a few weeks later, he and I, we sat through the mandatory baptism class. We received what we were told were some discipleship. That's the word, discipleship materials from the church. Never looked at it. And then we got baptized. For what was supposed to be a pivotal moment, it turned out to be just another day at church, except for I got wet. Now, after that, I proceeded to, here's the term, fake it keeping my heart locked away and simply coasting through the church motions. Church motions like dress right, don't run in church, act even better, smile. Here's what's tricky though, is the gifts that were inside of me, they worked. A few years into all of this, merely a sixth grader, I attended an evangelism workshop with adults. That's where we learned to share our faith with others, strangers, by using small pamphlets. They were like brochures called gospel tracts. After one day of training, we hit the streets. We drove to a nearby neighborhood and we knocked on doors. A few houses into all of this, door-to-door knocking, talking to people that we did not know who had not invited us to their home. Our youth minister, he looked at me and he said, Hey, you got the next house? Sure. I walked up the driveway and I noticed a garage sale underway. Eight or ten adults looked through tables of secondhand coffee mugs, folded shirts, and National Geographic magazines. I don't, I don't know why everybody sold those at garage sales, but they did. 
Anyway, undeterred, I asked whose house it was. A kind middle-aged woman with reddish-brown hair approached me. What can I do for you? We're from Hilldale Baptist Church, I told her. That's the real name, not a made-up one. Uh, I'd like to talk to you for just a moment. Now, I know what you're thinking. What about the customers that were there? I, I guess a friend was helping this lady run her house garage sale because she invited me to share with her. Then she stood spellbound for the next seven to eight minutes as I led her through that gospel track, that pamphlet, that brochure, The Four Spiritual Laws. Yes, I actually led that woman to faith in Jesus while standing in the middle of a garage sale in her own house. And we'd never met before. It was a cold call. We'd been going door to door at the end of a training seminar. Now, for the next decade, I continued leading to people to a faith which I really kept excluded from my heart. I, I believed it, but since that moment when I'd gotten sent back to my seat as a five-year-old, I kept my heart hidden. I taught classes, I led retreats, I hosted Bible studies, I counseled others, and I actually gave pretty solid advice. I placed two Bible verses in the placeholder for my senior quote in the high school yearbook, but that disconnect, it persisted. My head was there, but not my heart. Somehow, even though everything that was taught in the Baptist church focused on our mental ascent, like believe these things and you're in because people who don't believe exactly like this are clearly out, I knew something was off. I felt it. Trouble is, I couldn't just come clean. Well, I, I could, but the longer my charade went on and the more fruit, good fruit, that I had, the harder it became to just own my story. I look back and wonder, though, how the gifts, my gifts, work at such an early age. I always thought that our, our gifts, our supernatural gifts, our spiritual gifts, our whatever you want to call them, we'll define those later in a few weeks, I was always taught that those didn't come until we were, here's the phrase, born again. That is, I believe God didn't give us our spiritual gifts until we experienced the new birth. Over the past few years, though, I've learned something about some concepts that I'm going to relay over the next few talks. Remember, this is really just kind of the intro. It's something like this. First, godly character and obedience. The Father always blesses both. Um, that is, we always reap a return for walking in honor, for expressing love, for giving sacrificially, for other actions which demonstrate the presence of the kingdom. Uh, second, number two, creative gifts and natural talents. I believe now that we're born with really a set of skills and passions that are uniquely us. Some of those are developed or deepened over time because of life experiences. Third, spiritual gifts plus supernatural empowerment. Now, in addition to our creative gifts and our talents, the Father empowers His redeemed with the presence of His Spirit. His presence not only enables us to know and to do His will, His presence also empowers us to perform supernatural tasks as if God Himself expresses Himself through us. The same Spirit who does the third, the spiritual gifts and the supernatural empowerment, is the same Father who does the second, it's the creative gifts and natural talents, and He's the same Jesus who honors the first, that's the godly character and biblical obedience. So it all fits together. He's the one who set the very moral fabric of the universe together. He exists outside of human history, yet He humbled Himself and He appeared in the flesh on our timeline. He knows the end from the beginning. He's the author and finisher of our faith. And as he's proactively the one reconciling all things to himself, all of these areas, each one, again, I'll repeat them, godly character and obedience. That's number one. Number two, creative gifts and talents. 
Number three, spiritual gifts, supernatural empowerment. All three of these things fit together. So when you look back over your personal history, like me, you can probably see all these facets fitting together almost out of order, yet completely in order. Now that said, let me fast forward you from junior high and high school on to when I was in college. Fast forward to Father's Day. 1995. I was on summer break from college. It was my junior year. It was the third Sunday of the month of June, about 16 years to the date that I walked the aisle back when I was in my little black suit when I was six. Now, something special occurred that Sunday morning during the worship service. Something, I'll simply describe it as this. The Holy Spirit blew into the room in a gentle way, and His presence set up camp in a permanent way. I remember it like it happened today. It's it's one of those moments you have in life which you'll never forget. It's the kind in which you remember every single detail, not yet knowing the significance of what's happening until it's over. I remember where I stood. I can still hear the song being sung in my head as if it was that morning. I can still see the expression on Charlie's face. He was the minister of music as he led the congregational singing. Uh, He had this incredible way of leading people straight to the throne of grace. It's all vivid. It's as vivid as the night when I walked the aisle when I was five. And in the same way that that first event marked me, so also did this one. That morning in a Baptist church, the Holy Spirit descended like a robust cloud. I could see it. I could sense it. I could feel him in the room, filling every space, flooding every person with his goodness. Except, get this, except for me standing in my seat just halfway back in the center section on the right side of the church. This time, it seemed to happen all around me, but not to me. But but this is essential. I didn't feel excluded. I felt invited. Now, that Sunday night, a girl I knew invited me to go hear a gospel singing group at a nearby church. I was lonely. All my friends, they were coupling off and even getting married by now. I was confused facing the pressure to pick a major in college and declare what I was going to do for the rest of my life, and eager to please, especially a cute girl, right? I went. Turned out, this was one of those kinds of concerts I didn't like, the kind where the singers play a song, and then they talk about the song for longer than the length of the song. My thought was that if I was attending to hear you sing, then you should, well, you should sing. Something about that lead singer's story resonated with me, though. The the more he shared his narrative, giving us snips between songs, the more I felt something stirring in me, something, I I would say, it was coming alive. For, For years, I lived inside the church, he confessed. A pastor's kid, I learned how to fake it and just coast through the routines. I'm thinking, what? Was this my story? He continued, I never said anything because the longer I continued living like this, doing all the right things, the bigger and the bigger the entire lie got. I was certain I would let people down if I told them I was just now opening my heart to the goodness of the Father. I was afraid they would be disappointed, that they would feel like I'd robbed them, that I'd misled them the entire time. I thought to myself as he talked, he just nailed it. As we jumped into my friend's red Subaru sedan after the concert, I told her, I've got to tell you something. I could imagine all the scenarios that raced through her head. In hindsight, I was as timid about revealing the truth to her as I would have been about telling her I'd killed someone inside the church and hidden the body in the trunk of her car during one of the songs. And finally, after all this pause, that guy's story, I confessed. 
I'm the exact same way. This has all been fake, and I don't want it to be anymore. I've never wanted it to be. I want it to be real. I've wanted it to be real all the time. Now, now looking back, it was that man's story that broke through. In a way, no sermon ever could. And, and I, I'd heard hundreds of great ones in my life. The power, though, that was present in that story, it breathed life into my soul. That girl and I spent some moments praying. I asked Jesus to take complete control. Then we called my parents. It was the third week of June, like I mentioned. So they'd been traveling out of town for the annual Southern Baptist Convention. That's when they always hold their yearly meeting. The following Sunday morning, I sat near the front, close to the aisle, left side, middle aisle again. This time I wore a gray suit instead of black, and I had a spring in my step when the first words of the invitational, that's what they called it, the invitational hymn was sung. I, I took a few steps to the front of the sanctuary and was met by a Santa Claus-shaped man named Jack. Clean-shaven, though. At the time, I had no idea Jack would later become part of my extended family when one of my uncles married his daughter. Now, Jack led me to a counseling room. It was really a room that had been used for Sunday school just an hour earlier. And then he reflected. He, he beamed and he spoke. The Bible seems to say that we were being saved in the past, that we are being saved in the present, and we will be saved in the future. Now, true. I'll refer to some of those concepts over the next few pages of my notes here, so probably in the next few weeks here as we talk. And then Jack continued. He said, so this doesn't surprise me at all. I'm, I'm so happy for you. The, the Lord has a great story he's weaving together for you and for all of us. Now, over the next few months, I watched the Lord do for others what he had done for me. He awakened them to the reality of his presence, that faith was more than just mentally assenting, mentally agreeing to a few theological facts that we believe. Rather, faith was, it is, an ongoing encounter. It's an experience with his presence. I had a few conversations with some guys my age who said things like, I think I'm where you were. There's some disconnect there. I need to step forward too. And then they did. And then there were others, the vast majority I never spoke to, people who began bearing new fruit in what were once dry places. The change was obvious. For instance, there used to be a group of men who never attended Sunday school. They stayed in the hall and sipped cheap mass brew coffee on styrofoam cups, just in case someone came in late and needed to know where to go during Sunday school class. These Sunday school hall sitters, uh, they, they were watchers is what I'll refer to them as in several more talks when I talk about waiters, watchers, wonders, workers, that that kind of thing. Anyway, these men, they began attending and even leading the classes that they once skipped. Like they suddenly are leading the charge. Now, many of them became worshipers and began singing on the front row of the choir. Um, and, and then there's this. I, I wrote a three-man play I performed with two of my friends one Sunday evening. My dad gave us the entire Sunday evening service without ever even reading our script. I invited a coworker. He was my manager from a then locally owned department store named Parisian. I worked in the shoe department throughout college and was quite successful due to this guy's name was Andy. This man was 20 years or so my senior. He took me under his wings and he really showed me the ropes of that business. Now, he wasn't a regular churchgoer, but he came to me the following day. It was a Monday when I clocked in after that Sunday night play, and he said this. He says, you can feel the presence on the church parking lot. I could have just sat there. He, he wasn't the only one. Others said similar things about the church. Some people even found God in the gym. 
Yes, the place where we roller skated and played basketball during the week like other churches did back in the 80s and the early 90s. Other odd things happened too. Um, for instance, two years into this season, it was time to re-roof part of the church. The church administrator, Michael, he put pen to paper and figured we could save about $10,000 in labor if 10 to 15 men showed up and stripped the old shingles off, prepping the roof for the contractors. He made the pitch from the stage the next Sunday morning during the weekly announcements and had, now get this, not 10 to 15 men, but 100 plus men and teenage boys show up on a Tuesday during work hours. By the time the second wave showed up after work, after 5 o'clock, everything was done. This wasn't a church of 10,000 people. Those really didn't exist back then in that day. This was a church of about 600. And with that 600, there were people being baptized every single week. In other words, we saw legitimate eternal fruit, not just emotional hype and well-trodden Christian cliche phrases. Now, I've heard churches talk about being in, quote, seasons of increase and seasons of fruit bearing. A lot of times when I hear those phrases, they sound nothing more like than those catchphrases. Every visitation of the Holy Spirit in Acts is characterized by baptisms of new converted adults. So should we not expect the same today? Further, I suppose the measure of true revival isn't only what happens in the moment, though, in that moment. It's what happens 5, 10, or even 20 years later as a result of that supposed revival. The long-term fruit is what certifies that the experience wasn't simply emotional, but that it was truly supernatural. Now, that said, here's the ripple effect of what happened back at Hilldale those 20-plus years ago. Now, five years later, five years after that, the men who used to sit in the hall actually led the church. They moved from spiritual limbo to spiritual leadership. Now, Ten years later, men who were once businessmen, transitioned mid-career, went back to school, got trained, and left to lead churches and other ministries. Twenty years later, over 20 men and women who were my peers in my college and career group, that's what they called them, that age group, college and career, still serve in full-time ministry, that's a pretty stout wake. Wouldn't you agree? Now, I know that story, it seems a bit off topic for this series, for kind of the intro for this talk. I'll, I'll do another intro next week and kind of lead into this, but here's why it's all relevant. The original material that I'm going to talk to you over the next two, three months that I'm going to teach, the first run of that material and then empowering those participants to serve in the area of their unique giftedness, of understanding their identity, of, I think I just phrased it like this on the cover of the Life Lift book. That's the notes that I'm speaking to you from, is this, awaken to your identity, it's know who you are, live in the present, so that's absolute connection with, with God, and then express your purpose. The original material, all of that, like it came well before that Father's Day in which the Spirit moved into that church like a gentle breeze. In other words, this information, I think in large part, it created sacred space where that could happen. Now, we can't manipulate God at all, but we can create an environment where He can show up and show out and do the things that He loves to do. Uh, so that means that this information, it was a platform upon which all of that, of all of my experiences, were built. Th this really set the tone. Th this stuff that I want to teach you, these concepts, really led to that. Now, 
when my dad and I were working on this thing's turned into a book. Uh, he doesn't know how to type very well. He types, but he still studies and writes longhand notes with pen and paper. Uh, he prefers books like paperback books to ebooks, meaning that when we travel together, I generally travel light and he goes robustly heavy. I remember taking a quick beach trip with our family and a few friends the week before we finished writing the first version of the book, Life Lift. Uh, again, Life Lift being the, I've got a book and I've got some notes here that I'm teaching you of the book that we're re releasing. Uh, I remember he left most of the pages of the notebook behind in Birmingham with Judy. Judy was the church secretary. She was a bubbly lady who always answered the church phone as if you were her singular focus. No one had email back in the day. Websites didn't exist, so anyone who wanted the latest info on what was happening at the church called and spoke to Judy. Now, between those phone calls and her other regular duties, Judy punched Dad's handwriting into a computer and created the first draft of the Life Lift book. After we brought the final pages back from the beach, she finished the manuscript, and then that first group ventured through the material. So, again, I want you to make note of the timeline. The Spirit moved in that Sunday morning just after the people were empowered to do what they were called designed to do. Don't, don't miss that. Now, I'm not saying there's a formula, but I am saying when you release the Holy Spirit to lead people, he's then free to do some incredible things. Now, during that season, Dad told me stories about his staff meetings, about how four faithful men, that was the church staff then, really wrestled with what handing the church over to Jesus and allowing him to do what he wanted to do, what it really looked like. Uh, we need to move the congregation to every member ministry, he told the staff. And, th and that was his phrase, every member ministry. That's what they called it back in the day. The, the idea was that the church is the body of Christ and everyone was a part. As such, you need every part to function in a healthy way in order to create a vibrant community of faith. So whereas most churches view their staff as the ministers and the attendees as the members, this was a different paradigm. This view takes the admonition of Ephesians 4.12 seriously that the leaders of the church are not here to do ministry themselves, but they're here to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. That's almost verbatim a quote of that Bible verse. In other words, Dad and the three other main leaders on staff, the minister of music, uh, the church administrator, and the youth minister, they were not the ministers. They were called to be the equippers. This means we've got to hand off the ministry, he said. Well, then what will we do, one of the men asked. We'll equip them to do the work. So we won't be needed anymore? Oh, it won't be like that at all. We'll probably be needed even more. We'll have an even bigger task because the reach of the church will grow exponentially. We'll need to mentor. We'll need to train. But we'll let them do the work of ministry just like we see in the Bible. Well, if we do this, we'll lose control of the church, one of the other men said. And he was right. And he didn't mean it in a negative sense, as if he was going to have something taken from him. He just meant that, I mean, if, if you hand the thing off, then you totally hand it off. Well, let's hope so, another one interjected. Let's hope we lose control of the church. It's the right thing, another said. This is what we see in Scripture. Our role is to equip the saints to do ministry, not to do the ministry. Now, the language those four men used to describe what they saw Jesus doing in that church, where he was leading them, is incredibly beautiful. And in fact, it's the same language I used a few years later when I walked back down that same aisle again on a different Sunday morning, wearing, honestly, that same light gray suit. I walked up to my dad and I said, 
I'm called to be an equipper. I'm called to help people awaken to their identity, to live in the presence, and to express their purpose. He knew. He had seen it. In some sense, he had known all along. I was finally awakening to what he and my mom had already known to be true. After that, at some point, he told my mom, I, I think you'll see some Jenkins and Jenkins books published in the future. That was almost 25 years ago and a lot of life ago. Dad's done a lot in those 25 years, and I've written a lot, but we've never done any project like that until together. Not not until now. And again, again, that doesn't mean I was not familiar with the information I'm going to teach you over the next few weeks. And again, it's all the text and all the notes for a book that we're putting out. I've actually taught the material. I subbed for him a few times at our church when he was out of town. I remember teaching one Wednesday night to a group, and I said, I, I feel like this will date it, right? I feel like I'm the guy who goes in for Michael Jordan. Oh, that was back in the mid-90s, right, as the Bulls were pushing through their first run of back-to-back championships. And then I, I taught the material for him for an entire summer during seminary. About two years into the revival of the church, the Southern Baptist uh, group at the state level, Alabama Baptist State Board of Missions, uh, they offered Dad an opportunity to open up. It was called the Office of Leadership and Church Growth. Um, thereby, it provided him a platform to not only implement his material at one church, but to thousands of congregations across the state. So after a lot of prayer, he took the opportunity, and everyone moved from Birmingham to Montgomery. That, that meant this. The material that was created in the trenches of a real church was about to be taken to more churches. Now, during that, that phase, everyone in the family moved to Montgomery except for me. I remained in Birmingham, completed my final year of college, and then enrolled in seminary. Went to Baylor out in Waco, Texas, uh, which is now famous uh, because of an HGTV um, TV series. Anyway, Baylor Seminary out there, it required a semester-long internship. I remember I called Dad and I asked him about working for him for free one summer. He spoke with my professor. They agreed to set a criteria whereby he would submit reports and grade me, and the deed was done. I spent the final summer before my final year of school traveling with him and teaching churches in various settings how to implement what I'm going to talk to you about over the next few weeks, what you can actually get. I I think by the time you can hear this, the book's actually available online. I'll put the link to it in the show notes. Now, I actually tried to rewrite the material a few years later after seminary, right before Dad moved to his next ministry post at the First Baptist Church of Athens. This would have been, goodness, I would have tried to rewrite this material about a decade ago. And by then, I was working on staff at a new church in downtown Birmingham. For whatever reason, we never got beyond the editing phase. And to date, I still can't find that material anywhere on my hard drive on any of my computers. My guess is that's for the best because my views on the radical work of redemptive grace, the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit's presence, and the outlandish call that God has on your life, I believe those have all changed for the better. So about a year ago, Dad and I began talking about this material again. He retired from pastoring full-time three years ago, thinking that he would retool the original book that he used in that church that created the environment where revival happened and just kept rolling and rolling and rolling. He receives requests for it everywhere he travels. But at that time, the Lord had other plans. Church after church called Dad to operate more in his wheelhouse. 
He began serving as a transitional pastor, helping churches without a pastor reach deep into their history to determine who they were as a congregation, what the Lord had done in their midst, and what new thing he might do next. He was effectively empowering that congregation to do the work of ministry and chart a course so that when the pastor came and was ready to lead, he would be leading people who were equipped to minister, not just leading people who were sitting there thinking, well, what do we do now? So that, that means dad preaches on Sundays. He meets with the staff and deacons throughout the week, and then he helps them orient themselves towards important subjects like what I'm going to teach you and talk to you about for the next few months. Now, not only do they know what kind of pastor they want to call at that point, when he arrives, they're ready to follow his lead and do ministry side by side with him. Well, what about that book? I asked my dad one day. I don't have time. He said, we need it, but I don't have time to write it. Now, I know what you're thinking. Who has time to handwrite? That's what he would have been doing. Handwrite a rewrite, <laughs> right? Over time, I explained that he could teach the material on video, um, that we could release a few podcast episodes where people could dive deeper, like, like right now, and that we could create online tools for assessments and other important parts of the book, you know, like the PTSD self-check that's available on the home page of my website. One day my dad asked him, he said, why don't you just do it? You write, you write all the time, you know how to do the other things, I don't, why, why don't you take it over and do it? So I, I told him, I said, send a printed version of the first book in the mail, the paperback copy, like the kind of books he reads. By now, there were no e-versions that existed. All the computers used for the first version, as you can imagine, that Judy typed together, those were obsolete. Even if you could find a floppy disk, if you remember those, not the three-and-a-half-inch kind, like the five-inch kind that were really flimsy, even if you could find one, how in the world would you find a machine to read it? Well, my mom shipped me a copy of everything, FedEx, paper copies, immediately. So, no, long intro. Why, why am I telling you all this, especially as an intro to a podcast series? Well, here's why. I want you to know that, first of all, this isn't just more material. This isn't just a series of disconnected talks and content. Uh, not, not to me. As, as I've been writing the pages, as I've been putting together my notes, as I've been studying and talking even to you right now, I'm keenly aware that this information wasn't created in a classroom. It emerged from a congregation of sincere people who were seeking to follow the Lord in real time, real space, while doing the best they could to raise their families, manage their schedules, and do life well. And I, I really believe that doing all of that, I'm forever grateful for those people because they, as a group, as a community, helped create the environment where I was awakened to faith, where I learned to live in the presence, where I learned to begin, and there's so much growth that's happened since then, but I began learning to express my purpose in a very safe way. Third, and I think this is the place to sign off is to leave it with this as the last word. I really believe I've been entrusted with my father's legacy, with something that he created in the trenches of a real church that served real people. I've been entrusted to add to that, to take the unique expression of grace that the Heavenly Father has gifted me, to place it along some of the great truths that, in reality, my earthly father taught me, 
and create space, create a tool for you to help you, again, awaken to your true identity, to live in the presence, to express your purpose. And as we sign off, my prayer for you is that the Lord will bless you, that he will keep you, that over the next few weeks, months, however long it takes to really get all of this information out, that you're going to see his face of favor shine upon you. And more and more, you're going to awaken to the identity of the incredible person that you truly are and see how the depths of eternity have been poured into your spirit and are waiting to come alive and express themselves through your soul. You're going to learn to live in his presence, not not as a Sunday thing, not, not even just as a quiet alone time in the morning or in the evening or when you pray type thing, but to truly walk aware of that presence at all times. And and then finally, you are going to live your purpose. Until next time we talk, grace, peace, shalom.